everyone, and welcome back to Oh That Girl Reads. I am your host, Bria, and today we have a special guest, one of my professors from undergrad and one of my faves on the planet, um, Dr. James Blasingame. How are you? Great, Bria, and I have to tell you that um, uh, I can see you vaulting into international success and fame, uh, just like Adam Vitkavich did. Uh, he started doing something kind of like you are a few years back, and it just snowballed until now. He's one of the most uh, well-known experts on YA uh, in the um, uh, the uh, youth literacy world. So I fully expect your name to be, uh, we don't really say up in lights anymore, <laughs> but on the internet. Oh my good! Well, thank you. In I mean, Google like, searches. In the Google searches, top top page or first page, as they say. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for that compliment. I I really feel like you fostered that interest in like YA literature for me in undergrad, and so I would love if you kind of give us like a background of like your career in YA literature and your journey and what you do today. Thank you so much. Um, I was a high school English teacher for 20 years, starting in 1976. And um, during that time, I was at several different schools across the country um, and typically would teach uh, the traditional canon, uh, British literature, American literature, you know, Moby Dick, The Scarlet Letter, Rime of the Ancient Mariner, what can I say? It was boring. It was boring. Students were not engaged. They didn't connect with the literature. Um, they weren't becoming readers, that's for sure. And it wasn't what they were reading on their own. And then one, one uh, year, I was new at a school and they gave me what you might call the, the popular reading, not necessarily college bound <laughs> students. And uh, I was failing terribly. And then I found a box of Chris Crutcher's running loose books in a storage closet. And I brought that to class and passed them out. Let's read the first 20 pages for tomorrow. Lo and behold, the next day, they were all there on time. That had never happened before. And they were, I want to talk about this book. Dr. B, does this, is this a true story? Did this really happen? Who's this Chris Crutcher guy? It was about teenage characters and uh, their lives were a drama, very much like the real lives of teenagers. And those students who had not really been motivated readers, all of a sudden they were reading ahead. They were finishing the book early. They were wanting to know, um, and they were saying things like, that mean coach, he's just like coach so-and-so, <laughs> or um, uh, they're going to get in trouble doing that, just like so-and-so my friends <laughs> did. You know, all of a sudden, the discussion was real, and they were actually, uh, their reading and writing proficiency was um, just catapulting. And, and not that that's necessarily the only reason. Uh, but reading a good book can change a life and a great book at the right moment for the right reader might even save a life. And I have had, oh, probably 250 authors tell me that it used to be letters, <laughs> now it's email, 
of students who said, um, uh, I didn't think my life mattered until I read your book. How did you know my story? You validated my life and it changed everything because as we know from a study that my doctoral students did of 647 young readers here in the Valley, starting out in the Akamela Atham Pipash Native American uh, nation, in through the wealthy suburbs of Scottsdale into the center core, central core of urban Phoenix, young readers always said, I want to read about characters who look and live like me. And it makes all the difference. So 20 years as a high school teacher, uh, then I was a principal for a while, hated it. Uh, so I got a PhD at the University of Kansas and 25 years ago, I came to ASU. And what I didn't know was that um, when I was at Kansas, my, my professor, Dr. Bushman, always had me pick up the authors at the airport and drive them around. So I was becoming good friends with mm, 10 or 15 authors every year. But when I came here, what I found out was that every author on book tour in December, January, February and March wants to come to Arizona because they're coming from New York, Boston, Chicago, someplace cold. So I would find out who's coming, pick them up at the airport, uh, have a special event for them at ASU, take them out to, you know, they all want to have Mexican food while they're here and have events with students, have a barbecue at my house. And so I got to the chance, just by chance to become friends uh, with all of these authors, and oh my gosh, uh, Arizona is such a wonderfully diverse place for young readers. Um, like Monday, on Monday, I'll be going all day to an event at the Labriola Center at ASU, Lab, the Labriola Center uh, for uh, Native American Data Collection uh, and Literature, which is run by Alexander Soto, who is Tahana Otham. Uh, and we'll have a whole day sponsored by the Department of Education. Brooke Curlyhair, who is Dene, is the um, uh, director of the Arizona Department of Ed Office of American Indian Education. Yeah, she took the young adult literature class before you, mm-hmm. maybe five years before you. And now she's, you know, she's the boss. So we'll have a whole day. This will be the sixth time that she's done this in one year. Uh, we'll be learning um, culturally sustaining methods of uh, uh, teaching reading and writing for native youth. And uh, also, um, what are the books? What are the books that Native American students uh, can identify with? And uh, Arizona Humanities, and I'm uh, on the board of directors for the Arizona Humanities, which is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. We gave out a a million, not a thousand, a million, a million dollars in youth literacy projects last year, including bringing authors like uh, Brian Young. Brian is Dene Navajo. uh, And his uh, first two books, Healer of the Water Monster, and heroes of the water monster take place on the the Diné Nation, the Navajo Nation. They combine climate change and adolescence and Navajo origin stories. 
So they're kind of like Rick Riordan does in Navajo, does, you know, drought and uh, it's, they're just brilliant. Well, anyway, uh, Arizona Humanities brought him here and put him on a tour of nine different communities on the Navajo Nation, giving books to kids and him giving talks. Um, so it's just, I, I've been, you know, very lucky to come from rural Iowa, where I drove a school bus and coached football, wrestling, and track, and taught uh, seven English language arts classes a day, to come here, where there's always something really cool happening, and look at you, look at you, you're, you're proof of the pudding, uh, students who take agency from Arizona State, and become, you know, part of the, part of the, um, the I, I don't want to use the term war, but part of the <laughs> the army for literacy and books and reading and kids and uh, diversity and all of that. So yeah. um, that's my story. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really true, and I'm I'm really glad that I can kind of like continue on like from your teaching and kind of contribute to that because it's it's hard um, to kind of maintain those stories and keep those stories at the forefront you know, when we have like a whole bunch of like government and school districts and policies kind of attacking those stories that allow people to, you know, connect. Like I, it was, I can't remember what book it was, but I was so stunned to see it on like the banned book list. And I was like, what in the world like that? You know, it, it was so strange to me, but yeah. What do you think has been in terms of, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit before, but what do you think has been like the most impactful thing about YA literature as a whole? Well, Lori Hulse Anderson, uh, who was one of the most famous and most successful authors, uh, I especially liked her book, Winter Girls, which was, and I've, I've written a couple of book chapters uh, on Winter Girls, um, which was about uh, e uh, eating, uh, eating disorders. And she's also, her book, Speak, which was about sexual assault. And that's banned everywhere, of course, because mm -hmm. We, we don't want anyone, <sighs> just makes yeah. me so mad. Um, books give kids um, uh, armor. Sherman Alexie said that he, he wrote um, uh, The Absolute True Diary of a Part-Time Indian to give kids tools and weapons and armor against all the evils in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, reading is power. Knowledge is, is power. Uh, it just, it makes me, it makes me so mad. And I want to tell you something. I know you remember this, but just let me, this is for your, uh, your viewers. Um, the most famous Supreme Court case, the precedent of Pico versus Island Trees. Uh, school district back east, a uh, group of uh, book banners decided they didn't want uh, some of the most famous books in uh, the history of all of literature, not just young adult literature, that they didn't want um, uh, because, uh, oh, uh, well, racism mostly. Um, and uh, so Stephen Pico, a student at the school um, and, and some friends of his, he was a senior, friends of his and their parents got together and took these book banning uh, uh, people to court. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, um, once a book is in the curriculum, 
you do not a, a group does not have the right to come in and say no one can read this book because that is a violation of first amendment right of free access to ideas and for one group to say we're going to read these books but not these books is to quote give them power to prescribe what is orthodox in religion politics and philosophy close quote which in other words to say we're, we're going to use my version of the truth and reality in school and nobody else's and i'm not going to let anybody see anything that that isn't isn't uh uh in line aligned with my version of reality and of course you know we're seeing all these um far-right extremist white nationalist uh they call themselves christians but they're not christians um who who only want um well, I, I don't know what's left after they get done. Yeah. Uh, books where the dog dies at the end. I, I don't know. I really, really don't. What's left after after they've banned everything? But it's harmful. Mm -hmm. It's harmful to kids. It's harmful to society. It's harmful to justice. Because <laughs> it sounds it sounds like I'm fussing at you, and I don't mean it that way. No, no, you're passionate, and I and I definitely agree. I like. Um, I don't know if you've been hearing about like they call them like the red pill podcasts nowadays where it's like these um, older men in just who can have podcasts, you know, because anyone can have a podcast, you know what I'm saying? Um, but there's these older men who talk about like dating and they uphold like really misogynistic and, you know, toxic masculine ideologies. And um, something that people are really talking about now is how that's impacting younger boys like and how they're listening to this media and they're engaging in this media and they're absorbing this ideology and one of the things that i've been thinking about lately is like how media literacy and like forming that through YA literature gaining empathy through YA literature is kind of like the counterbalance to what's happening with like the red pill podcast and so if you think about like banning books and you think about like the categories in which you're banning the books in like lgbt plus and you know things from like diverse authors things by women um you're really allowing things like these red pill podcasts like really dangerous um organizations and groups to kind of indoctrinate these young kids at the end of the day so i un i understand the passion and i understand like you know that was yeah. very well said bria very well said i uh you you um uh gosh you uh you ought to write an article and let's see if we can get it published i mean i would be happy to oh i know i know um, I have a friend, I wrestled, uh, I went to college on a wrestling scholarship and one of the guys, our heavyweight, Robert Leonard, is now very famous on the news oh, wow. and you and he think the same way. I'll just say that. And <laughs> maybe, maybe he would interview you. I'm going to, would you be willing? Yeah, I would, be, I would be so open. And willing. I, I'm going to check in into that. And he is, you know, like the anti-Trump, the anti, the. <laughs> Uh, extreme right-wing uh, knucklehead. So, yeah, that, that, that would be good. And, you know, it's interesting to me, um, my college wrestling coach, who is among the toughest men and definitely 
um, uh, inspired the toughest men, physically tough, that I've ever known. You know, three-time national champions, Olympic champions. Um, and his, uh, what he taught us about what a real man is, is the exact opposite of what these red pill idiots are saying. The exact opposite. And uh, we were taught to treat everyone, especially women, with dignity and respect. And um, do I think of that group of guys that went out from that wrestling team and the wonderful things that they've done in the world, but it, it's very humanist. It's very uh, um, moral, I guess. Because <laughs> these guys, they're totally immoral. They're yeah. rotten SOBs. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's so it's so crazy because um, a lot of women that I've just been interacting with, like online and online spaces, they talk about like how they're watching their nephews in particular. They're like, oh, like my nephew used to be this way and we used to interact this way. And then all of a sudden, like I realized that he's been listening to like Andrew Tate, which is like one of the most famous red pill podcasters he's actually gotten um arrested and in, in some legal trouble for some of the things that he's done is he the one in the, who's in in romania yes yeah yeah that was him was so she was like i was i noticed that he started watching some of that and to see the shift in him was like overnight you know and i'm like that is so interesting and so with that that also brings the question to mind because i feel like um, in terms of the way I've been interacting with YA literature, I feel like um, a lot of stories have been focused on like younger girls or women. Um, but how have you seen like um, gender and gender ideas interact in YA literature throughout your career? Well, of course. Um, and, and let me uh, uh, let me give you a term, and then I'll then I'll, I'll, I'll attempt to answer your question. But yeah. Uh, a very famous uh, kind of uh, one of the pioneers in young adult literature, Ted Hipple. In fact, there's an award named after Ted Hipple. He's passed away now, but he came up with the term Downs literature. He said that uh, in the United States, we were addicted to Downs literature in our English classes and that it just was killing reading. And Downs stands for dead old white men. Um, and he, he led a generation of, of uh, scholars in English education uh, uh, away from that. So now back to your question. Well, I feel like um, because of people like Ted Hibble um, and Michael Cart uh, also, um, that the young adult world has uh, embraced LGBTQ before, or at least even <laughs> with uh, everybody else in the world. And it's been life-saving for kids. And I see the emails that uh, my friends, uh, LGBTQ authors, will uh, send me, readers saying, considering suicide. And I even, maybe I attempted suicide, I, they, they may sometimes say, um, until I read your book. And now I know that there's nothing wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Nothing. I'm just as valuable a human being as anybody else, mm -hmm. maybe. And... Um, uh, and, and, and maybe the world has something special uh, for me to do. Uh, and, uh, and of course, uh, being happy is enough. <laughs> that, that's me saying that. Just, just being happy is uh, enough for any human being to accomplish in the world. But um, uh, 
and, and, and it may be partly because it, um, all these publishers, like Arthur Levine at Scholastic, who brought Harry Potter uh, to the United States, Arthur Levine is gay and has raised a family and has been unafraid to um, uh, encourage LGBTQ authors and Native American authors and others uh, through um, to come to Scholastic. Or now he has his own uh, publishing company, Levine Querido, which interestingly enough, the Querido part uh, is named from a uh, uh, a family, a family and publisher in Europe, the Quadito Publishing, which the Nazis uh, shut down because um, of the uh, head of the family who was uh, uh, voicing anti-Nazi, uh, anti-Semitic anti um, uh, events in Europe just before World War II. Um, I believe was uh, either put in a concentration camp or executed. Um, and uh, Arthur Levine didn't want the memory of that to go away. So he revived it. So publishers are, are, are doing a lot. You've got um, uh, Pinata books at Arte Publico uh, dedicated to uh, uh, Latin, Latine, uh, Latinx, uh, young adult, and also, you know, picture books. And, and so, I mean, I imagine when the very picture books that you first see as a child don't have you in them. How harmful is that? And, um, you know, I've, I've got several right here. Uh, I don't dare um, try to pull anything off the stack or it'll all come cascading down. I relate to that deeply. <laughs> we'll not even show you my bookshelf right now. <laughs> yes, but I definitely, I'm, it was funny because um, I, at the beginning of the year, I read um, this book called Legend Born by Tracy Dion. Um, and I remember after finishing the book, I was like, I really wish that when I was 16 and when I was in high school, I was reading about a black girl navigating um, a, the racist South, but also like coming into her own magical powers. That would have given me so much connection. And I think that book is like so beautiful in the way that it talks about like um, just like the generations and the women that came before him. I think that would have given me such like a, a state of place that I would have adored. And so what I'm happy about is that like I have a niece and I have a nephew. I'm happy that they're growing up with books that have them in it. You know, when I was like giving them because I give them books. My older sister hates it. She's like, please, they're so heavy. <laughs> I have to move them around. But I, I give them books um, for like their birthdays and for Christmas and stuff like that. And it's actually fairly easy to do. I don't, I don't have to like go on intense excursion to find, you know, books where, you know, there's characters that look like them. And then, you know, I've opened myself up to like also getting things from like indie writers and authors and publishers and things like that and so i think it's just such a a beautiful space right now which is really great you know i hear you talk like this uh Rhea, and i i just um think uh, that your voice needs to get out there as far as possible um a national and international uh voice i love the things that you're saying um and uh you know look at this for example uh 
Palabras Bookstore, bilingual I love bookstore. That bookstore. Isn't it great? And we gave uh, the owner um, our um, El Dia de los Niños, El Dia de los Libros Forest Family Award uh, two years ago. And last year we gave the owner our, well, what was it? Our, was it our rising? We gave her our award through the Arizona Humanities. I can't remember what that, what that award is. Friend of the Humanities, maybe. Um, but there are some great bookstores out there that are kind of specialty uh, uh, places who are embracing uh, d diverse authors and, and diverse stories. And, you know, especially here, here in Arizona, it's, it's not that it's not important everywhere. Uh, I was the principal of a tiny little farm high school in rural Madison County, Iowa. I was the principal there when they made the movie Bridges of Madison County. And although we were one of the poorest school districts in Iowa, our school board, entirely made up of farmers, said, we're going to make sure that Mrs. McClure, our librarian, has all the money she needs to buy whatever books she thinks that our kids should have because we do not want them to grow up not knowing about the world outside of uh, here. Want them to be to know about you know, other people and uh, what their lives are, are like. Um, and part of that, uh, Bria, was because in that um, 75 by 50 mile school district, everyone was related either by marriage or by blood. So they were uh, not, not a real diverse group. Yeah. Do <laughs> you know the most valuable thing in that community was the school? They would do anything for the school and the kids in the school. Oh, that's brilliant. I love that. I feel it, like there's there's definitely a lack of that these days um, in terms of our schools. Yeah, no kid could fall through the cracks. In fact, our uh, 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 the president of the school board, if there were some kids who needed tutoring, he'd come in, you know, drive his tractor through the snow and get in there at uh, lunchtime and tutor kids himself. Um, they wanted, we had a Rhodes Scholar at that tiny little school and we had AP calculus, AP physics, AP everything, even if we only had eight kids in it because those, those uh, people, they were not gonna, not gonna have anything less than the best school they could possibly have and give their students the best opportunities, which, that isn't true everywhere. Some people are so jealous that other other people's kids might be successful. And I, I know that's not what we're here to talk about, but. No, I mean, to be honest, like I think that really does relate in a way. It's like all about access, you know? And I, well, my last job in a library was as a circulation attendant in Sunny Slope. Um, oh. And it was at Acacia Library. I adored that community. Acacia Library was like the tiniest little library ever, but it was a real pillar for the community. Like kids would come, they would get their lunch, they would be able to be watched by adults who were investing in them and making sure that they were okay. There was, you know, there was even like a bit of like a homeless population that we would take care of if we had extra lunch from after the kids ate. We would provide it. It was a place to be cool, like escape the heat type thing. It was a very integral part of the community that supported the community. And whoever walked in through the doors was to be taken care of by us, you know? And so I think 
I think that's part of it. And then books existed there as well. And that helped, you know what I'm saying? And it kind of created a place where they can explore these things. And like, we would make our different displays and help people just like get, build the love of reading, you know? And so I, I think that's, I think they relate to each other. I think education and literacy and, you know, our public services, they all relate to each other. And it's how much you want to, invest in it as a community is is what helps them survive at the end of the day so absolutely i'm also kind of curious because i don't know how active are you on like the online spaces like instagram and tiktok and youtube and things like that not not very much and i think that's a function of of age i turned 70 last week so uh um you know i i And I don't think young people don't use Facebook, do they? Um, I think we kind of do, but I think it's more so to keep up with like family members and friends. It's more of like the life stuff that's happening versus like the entertainment stuff that's usually happening I, everywhere else. I, I'm on Facebook every, every few minutes, actually, uh, and uh, um, uh, while I'm on the commuter, which is probably, I don't know, eight hours a day. And it's pretty much for staying uh, abreast of what's happening with my author friends mm-hmm. and also uh, my other uh, young adult literature friends in the Assembly on Literature for Adolescents and uh, in the International Literacy Association and in the National Council of Teachers of English. And also to keep up with my um, international friends uh, from Tanzania, Ghana, Kenya, Morocco, Senegal, uh, Brazil, um, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, all of whom I met while they were here for a semester at ASU on programs from the State Department. And we, we became good friends. And now, you know, it's been uh, starting with COVID, we put our big El Dia de los Niños, El Dia de los Libros event out to 47 countries, including even Ukraine. Uh, and uh, then we've, we've had a big writing contest with just like thousands of participants from all over uh, the, the world. So I, I use Facebook um, for that, but Instagram, TikTok, nah. yeah, I, know. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know how. I mean, it's kind of good for you because I honestly, I feel like as soon as I joined TikTok, my brain started to rot, but, um, but I think you would be really impressed by kind of what's been building in the book communities there, like in terms of TikTok, oh, in oh. terms of like Instagram and YouTube and things like that, just how people start to connect and share their ideas. I don't know. I feel like that's a that, cool That's thing. interesting you should say that, Bria, because um, I was asked to write a book chapter for an Oxford, uh, uh, is it Oxford or Cambridge, one, one of those two. A uh, gigantic um, uh, handbook of young adult literature, and I was asked to write the uh, chapter on the history of YA publishing and the publishers. And at the end of it, um, to say, well, this is where I think we're going. And Cheryl Klein, Cheryl Klein is one of the most famous editors in YA. She was at Scholastic, and while she was at Scholastic, she was in on the editing of the the Harry Potter books, and she also did Bill Konigsberg and um, Eric Gansworth, a, a lot of famous authors, and then she was stolen away to be the CEO of Lee and Lowe, 
Lee and Lowe is a publishing house that does nothing but diversity. It's their whole reason for existence. And within the last year, she was stolen away by somebody else. And um, she said that the future of uh, uh, publicity for publishing is going to be totally through TikTok and Instagram. Um, you know, my doctoral students and I wrote a book about um, Stephanie Meyer and the oh. Twilight, the Twilight. Uh, um, oh, my. Oh, that's it. That's the book we wrote. <laughs> yeah. Well, what we found out was that and that was quite a while ago, was that um, <clears throat> all the publishers tried to emulate that success that Little Brown had with the Twilight books. And they all got their their own vampire author and but they just weren't successful because what had happened was teens around the world had set up websites uh fan sites for the, the twilight books in i think what did we count 37 languages maybe and a hundred and something countries off and they were talking to each other in cyberspace and i think the same thing is probably because Book talk, B yes, book T O K. Yes, book. Yes, yes. Um, and I should be on that, shouldn't I? I think you would love it. I think you would have so much fun. Um, right now, like I'm kind of in the more like adult fiction side of book talk. Um, that's just because that's what I've been mostly reading as of lately. But and they have a lot of drama, so stay away from them. But the YA is, I think you would enjoy that a lot um and yeah it's funny that you mentioned twilight because i was like when twilight was kind of exploding i was a twilight fan fiction writer and i was on oh. tumblr and oh i was like gosh. talking about twilight too so yeah <laughs> that was me that was me i was very nerdy wow. in my room. <laughs> can you tell us your name oh my gosh no <laughs> okay that's okay no that's okay this was really interesting because when I was editor of a journal called the Allen Review, it's a professional journal about Yano literature, the copy editor, it was a freelance copy editor that the National Council of Teachers of English hired to do the final copy editing. And she was um, just a little older than me. And she confessed to me when we did an article on fan fiction that she was a famous fan fiction author. Really? And she told me her name. I don't remember what it was, but... Uh, I think it's a place where you get to um, embrace your alternate identity. Definitely. I have a, um, a bit of a contest going on. Whoever can discover me first gets a prize. But people have been trying for years, like my friends and family. And then I started to make like internet friends and they've been trying. And I'm like, it's secret. I mean, it has a fair amount of views. I won't say I was famous, but it had a, a big following. Been I do not want anyone to read it, but if someone finds it, <laughs> they get a they win. They win. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. That's so great. I'm glad I got to talk to you about Twilight though, because I I am a Twihard. Even today, like Twilight has gone through a whole renaissance, even um during the pandemic on TikTok. There's people like making like skits or reimagining Twilight. Um every fall it's like a big thing they play like music from the movie soundtracks and they're like oh it's God. twilight season and and things like that and so it's made a huge impact like i'm a part of a facebook group 
still. It's oh. It's called Twilight Shitposting. It's the most chaotic place ever. It's where I guess the Tumblr kids went after Tumblr kind of got um, deleted, sadly. Um, but we still talk there. We talk about Twilight. I cause havoc and controversy usually, but. <laughs> Did you know that we put on the Eclipse prom at ASU? We had a we had a vampire prom. Stephanie Meyer asked us, uh, "Can we do something like a Harry Potter midnight book release?" Yeah, that they used they used to do that, um, but it would be like it's the prom at Forks High School, oh and uh, <clears throat> we we had a thousand uh, young people from all over the world come, and uh, she asked that they either wear vintage evening wear you know great big poofy dresses yeah. or come as a, a vampire or a werewolf and then she hired uh, actors and models to who looked like looked like you might imagine edward or jacob would look and you could have your picture taken uh with them and it was the book release for eclipse so you got your book and uh and then she had, she said she wanted uh, quote cheesy crepe paper decorations and uh, kitschy food like you might have at a, a high school dance. So we had all of that, and there was a lot of dancing. There was a lot of dancing, but there was a lot more sitting against the wall reading their new books. Uh, and I have pictures if you if you want. E uh, I'll email you uh, a folder of pictures. Oh my God! Yes, I need to see these. That's so exciting. You, you got it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So I would love to kind of know um, like what's kind of going on in your classes right now. Cause you're teaching oh, oh. the semester. Well, we just, we just finished uh, Jackie Woodson's Brown Girl Dreaming, which won the national book award. Yes. Um, and I'm trying to get her to zoom into class. Uh, I've known her for a long, long time, but you know, she's so famous and so popular and, um, but I have a little bit of money uh to spend from some some different accounts we also we read eric gansworth's uh, apple skin to the core uh about him uh growing up on the tuscarora uh indian nation he is haudenosaunee himself and that book didn't win the national book award but it was on the list uh so it, it was close <clears throat> uh today we start celia pettis's book first rule of punk so we'll be doing zines. I've got bags and bags and bags of scissors and tape and markers and stuff that I'll be taking to class today. I love um, zines. Oh, they're the thing. They're, they're so the, cool. They're the thing. Um, have you have you heard of the book? It's I think it's called Moxie. Mm. Yes, it's all about um, a young girl like discovering like her mom making zines like back in the 80s i think like that and something like that oh my gosh it's yeah. loose out in the back of my car and i have no idea what it is but that's what it is that's what it is <laughs> and there's also like a netflix movie um about oh, it. yeah i think i might have seen i didn't see the movie but i think i saw the ad yes i'll be darn moxie okay i'm all over it yes i think it's I haven't read the book. I saw the movie and then I was in the library maybe like a couple of weeks ago and they had like a display. It's like for all the people who like just seen Barbie or something like that. And they had Moxie up there. And I was like, I think that's the Netflix movie that I just watched. And so I read the wow. back and it is. 
and it's all about z making and i it's really cool because they're kind of discussing topics around like sexual assault and like misogyny in their school and like introducing feminist ideas to like all the girls in it so yeah i think it's a really good read do you ever want to check it out you know bria this has been interesting that um i'm seeing a lot of ya made into the you know the quickly made movies that happened on netflix and prime and mm -hmm. and other uh what i call apple tv channels i don't know if that's what they really are but like better nate than ever did did you see that movie i don't think better so. nate than ever well uh uh oh gosh what is oh shoot and and the book is downstairs in the garage <laughs> oh shoot what is his name anyway he was um uh, a, a, a young gay dancer on Broadway, and uh, <clears throat> he started writing these books about a character just like him as a teenager coming to New York at like 14 or 15 and trying to get on Broadway as a dancer. And yeah. um, he was actually here on book tour. In my YA class, we had uh, we went to his book launch at Changing Hands, and then we had supper with him. And he was super nice. And then last year, the movie came out. And my wife and I watched it. And we thought, yes, they got it right. I don't, I'm not sure what he thinks. But, um, yeah. but this has been a, a kind of a cool phenomenon that you've got. Because you've got all these different um, Prime and Netflix and uh, Hulu. And they're making movies just for those. A uh, little bit lower budget, but that doesn't matter and um yeah. making all the ya's into movies yes i kind of hope like because you know ya fantasy and um things like that have been gaining a lot of popularity lately i hope that they eventually move into the animation space with their like movie adaptations i feel like that'd be so cool i would i would be so excited about that yeah um Okay, so I don't want to take too much of your time, but I did have a couple of questions from some audience members. May I ask you some of them? You bet. Okay, so a lot of them have to kind of do with like the publishing side, if you have any interest <clears throat> or insight on that. But one question that I really would like the answer to is, um, is it difficult to get why books recognized as proper literature? Oh gosh, we've been we did, we've been fighting this battle, um, well probably for forty years or, or so. If you go back to nineteen sixty seven, the Outsiders, Mr. and Mrs. Bojo Jones, the Contender, those books are still around and still very popular. And over the years, they've sold millions, in some cases billions, uh, of books. Um, I I think it 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 is and. Uh, Robert Probst, who was one of the um, uh, progenitors of reader response theory, said that there's a difference between working on literature, which is, you know, like, what does the green light at the end of Daisy Buchanan's dock and the Great Gatsby symbolize? Okay, there's, you can do that, but that's not the same thing as personally engaging with the book in its story. You know, um, uh, it was uh, Mel Glenn who said that when in, 
he was a Peace Corps worker who came back to New York City and taught at his own high school, uh, I think it's Lincoln High School, telling the stories of what it's like to be a kid at, at, at that high school. And he said that for a YA book to be successful, the reader has to identify with the person telling the story and feel like they're in that person's skin and living that life. Um, which is one of the things that when we talk about authentic voice in YA, is teen readers, they, they smell a rat right away if you don't, if you can't do it. John Green can do it. Um, Jackie Woodson can do it. John Grisham, the famous uh, um, law thriller, legal thriller, court thriller author of um, all those books. That made, he tried to do it and failed miserably. Um, because kids, this isn't, this is not a teenager wrote this. This is a spooky older guy trying to pretend like they're, they're a teenager. It's not teen voice at all. Um, <clears throat> if we believe that a point of reading can be uh, to engage with the story that will empower a young reader to make sense of their lives and understand the world. They're going to be readers for life right and there are great YA books that do that moby dick you know i think moby dick is a great work of art but i don't go and read it to figure out how to make sense of my life not unless i'm going to go be harpooning whales in the north atlantic which i'm not um <laughs> but yes <laughs> yes getting teachers and you know kelly uh kelly gallagher the um who's written a lot of books on how to teach English language arts, he says a balanced curriculum will have some, okay, I'll call it downs, will have some downs in it, uh, but then it's gotta have contemporary read, writing too. And it isn't just why, I mean, why not have Colson Whitehead, a Colson Whitehead book uh, in, in your 11th grade English class, you know, Underground Railroad. And why not have, uh, well, other, a Jackie Woodson um, uh, uh, book. Um, and there's a lot of new adult writing coming out for uh, readers who are 18 to 27. That, um, and that's what all these actors who play the characters like Fault in Our Stars and those different movies, um, then you hear about the, the, all they're reading now is why, but a lot of what they're reading is what we call new adult because there's a there's a whole nother set of special challenges that you start to to face from between 18 and, and 27. Yeah, so getting English language arts teachers to to believe that this is valid um the good ones know mm -hmm. um and of course more more and more uh far right school board people are are afraid of YA because of its uh uh, allowing readers to think for themselves and encouraging critical thinking, which they don't want. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it's it's hard. But it's if you know know how, because um, you can meet the state standards even better, mm -hmm. and um, you can find rationales for teaching any of these books at the National Council of Teachers of English website, mm -hmm. and you can. You can show. I mean, when um, Tucson did the Rarasa Mexican Studies program, uh, which um, then uh, 
the evil school superintendent and um, the evil state uh, Senator Russell Pierce got ethnic studies banned. And then it took trial after trial after trial until finally that was overturned. But they showed that the kids in that program, their test scores were skyrocketing compared to everybody else. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's hard, but it, it can be done. I also, I think you bring forth a, a really solid point too, is that like things that are recognized as like proper literature as like a classic are usually rooted in um, like the white patriarchy where it's like just appealing to a certain standard that's been set for like hundreds and hundreds of years. It hasn't really changed. And so um, now trying to get like a book about a little brown girl <laughs> to be a part of that standard it would be a challenge because you do have to go up against like not only the societal like knowledge but then all of the like lawmakers and organizations that want to kind of push back against that as well i think it's, there was, um <laughs> there, when i was getting my doctorate there was a book called official knowledge it was about that very thing mm -hmm. uh and it had an african-american author who said that somebody got to decide that this is is these are the real books and this is the real knowledge why yeah. um and uh like right now there's a man who lives in the valley his name is simon ortiz mm -hmm. he's akama from the akama pueblo uh, uh city in the sky um and um around the world he is the most famous living Native American poet. And he's always off to China to pick up another award, or he's off to Austria to pick up another award and do a reading. And um, well, why isn't Simon Ortiz in our American literature textbooks? Yeah, exactly. It's like that. It's very interesting. Like when I think my first it actually failed out of this class, which is funny. Um, but my first year at ASU, um, it was I think it was American lit that I had to do, or it was something like that. And it was old dead white guys. <laughs> Just, you know, the whole entire class. And it was hard for me to engage in it. I I absolutely could not. But then I started taking um, classes with like, I think the first more so diverse class that I've ever taken was with Dr. Bebo, who did um, Latin American literature. And then the next one was Unruly Voices with Dr. Miles. And she was the first black teacher I've ever had in my life. And that was in my second year of college. And so I was kind of like, well, there's all these amazing authors and writers coming out of like, you know, these diverse groups. And it is sad that they're not a part of like the core curriculum or, you know, the legacy of American writers. There was um, somebody did a listing. I think it might have been Jim Burt. And it showed that the majority of the literature taught in American high schools had not changed in something like 60 years. And even in that, there was only one Nobel Peace Prize 
winning author. Oh my gosh. It's insanity. I hope, I don't know. I hope we kind of get to a point where one, that there isn't so judgment over like what people are reading and labeling it as like proper literature and as like, you know, this distinguished thing, because I don't think something needs to be considered a literary masterpiece in order for it to be impactful. Um, but yeah, I, I do get it was a really long fight. I think um, Mouse is a good example. Um, and I don't know, somebody got a quote from me on Mouse for Newsweek or something. When do you remember the most recent attack on Mouse? It's just like a year ago. I'm not I'm not sure when it was, but no. um um what better way to express the horrors of what the Nazis did to Jewish people than to present it as car cartoons, you know, a, a sequential narrative art with the Jewish people as mice and the Nazis as cats. What better way to show what a god-awful, disgusting uh, human um, travesty it was mm -hmm. than through artwork? Because, um, you know, a story, linear text, you know, it, 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 if you scan, the modern brain scanning shows, you know, little fireflies going when, when you're reading, you know, one word, one word, one word. But when you're reading a graphic novel, fireworks mm -hmm. and you're hitting the parts of the brain where feelings happen and values you know emotions uh as well as just you know verbal linguistic logical um but a lot of people think well if it has pictures it's <laughs> it's not good literature mouse is one of the best books ever written and one of the most important too mm -hmm. art spiegelman I mean, I think you bring a good point, too, that I feel like I'm always arguing with people about is um, what is considered reading as well. Like, is graphic reading graphic novels considered reading? Is listening to audiobooks considered reading? Like, you know, I I feel like there's that debate, like, every week on Book Talk about, like, what's considered valid reading. And just to say to anyone who's listening, however you get your books, you're reading. And I'm proud of you for reading. And thank you for reading. <laughs> If sequential narrative art is not powerful reading, then why has every military in the world and the World Health Organization, why have they all decided that anytime you want to convey important information accurately and quickly as you can, use sequential narrative art? Mm. See, there you go. <laughs> Okay, so let's see. I think the second question, um, and we'll round it out with this one, is a, a good question, especially as you introduce New Adele. And I think New Adele is kind of like a newer category within literature. Um, but what qualifies YA versus children versus Adele? Why are some series split between them, such as Harry Potter? The first few books are considered children, but then the second half are considered young adult. Oh, absolutely. And... Um... Uh, there have been um, theorists about psych psychology, um, Bruno Bettelheim, uh, Kohlberg, uh, Anderson, Erickson, um, uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who theorized that 
our the mind is what the brain does, Steven Pinker said, but they theorize that what's happening in our brain is going through actual organic physical changes as as we get older and then our minds, our behavior shows it. And actuarial scientists, these are people, and you can get this degree at ASU, who they do, they crunch numbers for insurance companies. Tell insurance companies, um, well, in order to make money, <laughs> you're going to have to charge this much for this kind of insurance for these people. And they have always known car insurance for boys, you're going to charge a ton until they hit 27, 28, because they're idiots until then. <laughs> With young women, it's, it's younger, but it's still in the 20s. Well, when modern brain scanning made it possible, we found that uh, the part of the brain that does risk management executive decisions didn't fully develop until 27 28 later in boys and i i can remember when i was that age on my motorcycle doing the stupidest things i should be dead and i could have been and i knew a lot of people who were mm -hmm. um that you know now that i'm 70 i would never do those things because my brain <laughs> uh so you've got um, uh, primary, elementary, then tweener. Now tweener, and everybody's brain development's a little bit different, uh, but tweener is um, 11, 12, you're coming out of childhood and you're, you're pre-adolescent, you're, you're starting to get some of those hormones and some of that brain development. Uh, and, and typically that literature uh, you're, you're facing some stages of moral development in it, but you don't have, there's not drugs and sex and things like that. Then middle level, which is middle school or what we used to call junior high. And that's where um, some kids are physically turning into adults. Since back when I uh, had a, an after school writing uh, program at a middle school here, there were these two girls who were best friends. One of them was like three and a half feet tall and one of them was six feet tall. And the one, the six foot tall one looked like a grown woman, but they were best friends and inside of their heads, they were the same. They were the same. They were the yeah. same. So that's middle level. You're, you're, you're starting to, um, uh, sprout feet are getting bigger. Hands are getting bigger. Uh, maybe a little interest in romantic partners starting to form really meaningful friendships. Then YA young adult and that's 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, kind of upper middle through high school. And there's a whole range of uh, developmental challenges at that age, according to um, Havig, Hurst, Anderson, Erickson, Bettelheim, uh, that uh, at this age, well, you're starting to think about intimate partners, intimate romantic partners. And who are you attracted to? And as, as we now know, you know, different people are, are attracted to different people. And gender is, uh, it's not so black and white as, you know, boys and girls. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot more to it than that. And um, uh, also moral choices, 
during this YA period, hopefully you're starting to move into a place where you don't do what you think is right because you're afraid of punishment, but because you're, there's some part of your mind that feels harmed if you do something you feel is wrong to someone else. Mm. Okay, now out of that into new adult, and new adults are facing, you know, very obvious things like college and buying a car and life insurance and a real job and getting married and having kids and all of that stuff. Um, and uh, at this new adult point, well, if you haven't successfully met the challenges from the previous phase, you're going to have issues. And, you know, I'm 70 and I know some people my age who never successfully figured out how to choose a good intimate partner. Yeah. <laughs> and they just keep making the same mistakes over and over and over or how to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, in the, the, the immortal words of Spike Lee, do the right thing. Um, so new adult is um, uh, as you're, you're, you're beginning those things that these are going to affect the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Learn, learning how to be married, which is complicated. Let me tell you, yeah. it's not simple. It's I not like in the movie. <laughs> it's great. It's great. It's great, but it's a lot of work. Oh yeah. Um, and, uh, and how to be a parent, uh, how to have a, how a baby you know when you have a baby you you can't uh your first thought can't be of well what's what's going to be fun for me to do today and tonight that's out the window now yeah um and uh so new adult i does it seem like i answered that question no i think you answered that brilliantly i think and it made me think about some of the books that are on my shelf right now like there's this book called mame by jessica george and it follows um a young black woman in England who is basically a late bloomer and she's discovering, she's going through um, like the self-discovery of like dating and like navigating friendships and things like that because she was so um, parentified as a young child that she had more responsibilities to her family that she couldn't develop fully. Um, and so she's, it's like this coming of age story for a woman who's like 26. And so I'm kind of like, I mean, it's considered adult. It's considered adult fiction, but I think that was the new adult aspect that I kind of connected to. For it, sure. it sounds like new new adult to me. Yeah. And you bring up you bring up a good point that we're we're talking about the co combining of a whole palette of colors. Mm -hmm. That everyone's story. I always tell the students in class: if there are seven and a half billion people on the planet, there are seven and a half billion ways to be a human being. And you, you bring in the uh, a cultural heritage and ethnicity and gender and sexual identity and all these different things, there's a million stories out there. Exactly. Yeah. And finding the book that fits you and then reading every book that author <laughs> ever read, wrote. <laughs> Literally. And I think I also was thinking about, um, I don't know if you've heard of this book, but um, the author Talia Hibbert, she usually writes um adult romance and so there's like a lot of like sex scenes and explicit things in there but she made um her YA romance debut um with the book highly suspicious and unfairly cute and um 
I think it was so interesting to kind of compare her works in terms of how she approaches romance as like an adult writer and then as a YA writer. And mm. um, I was like wondering, like, this is my question because I'm going to sneak it in there <laughs> before we go. Um, but what are like the main differences you would say are in how an author might approach a subject like romance and sex between like new adult and <clears throat> YA? Let me start by saying this. Several authors told me, Linda Sue Park, Rodman Philbrook, Gary Paulson, Gary Soto, um, several authors told me that although they had written books for adults, mm -hmm. they moved totally into books for younger readers because they, they had experienced that adult readers, and I think the older the reader is, the more this is true, all, they're only interested in books that, that confirm, affirm the reality that they want. The, this, this, this book shows the world the way it really is, which is to say this book shows the world the way I think it should be, <laughs> yeah. which is what's best for me. Whereas younger readers were willing to embrace, accept, consider a reality that could be, how things could be. Um, Parrotfish, do you know that book? It, 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 it Parrotfish, it, it's been a, uh, L. Whitlinger, it's been a long, quite a while ago. It was the first YA book about trans youth. Oh, okay. And, and uh, I had a, a group of uh, ASU students who read it, and then we published a couple of articles about it in the Allen Review. And they said, well, this isn't, we don't like it because the, the characters aren't um, discriminated against. It's a, it's a world where this character is happy and people are nice to them. And well, what's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, and, and I think often, you know, in fiction, we see the world the way it could be. First, yeah, and and then then we then we 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 work uh, toward that. Okay, now I forgot what your question was. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I I really loved where you were going. Um, but the question was uh, basically like the main differences in how um, a YA writer and a adult writer or new adult writer would approach a topic like sex and like relationships. Oh, way. okay, okay, yeah, and um, uh. I think for an adult writer, no holds barred. They just they just figure out okay, where can I sell the most books and what can I include in my in my uh, content to do that. Um, I think that uh, any YA writer, tweener through young adult, is trying to I hope uh, trying to make even if they don't know it trying to make a statement about the human experience of moving from childhood to adulthood, and, um, trying to make a statement that's true. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like this. And maybe what it's like is that, well, if, if, you're, um, if you're a gay man, uh, as uh, the, uh, the kind of the characters Bill Konigsberg writes about, um, these are the things that happen. Bill, Bill's excuse me, your most recent, recent book, Manifest Destiny, is about the AIDS epidemic in New York City in the 80s. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and the char- the main characters are teenagers then, uh, which was um, you know kind of a, a, a very dangerous and deadly time for gay young men. You know, first learning about sex and first um, exploring their attractions, and uh, at the same time uh, experiencing the social uh, um, discrimination. Um, but finding new uh, communities of uh, friend, friendship and, and, and love and so on. Um, so I think there's always this developmental thing that the YA author, and when I say YA, I often mean everything tweener to young adult. They're trying to explore this developmental thing and saying, it's like this. This, this is this is how it is. Yeah. And for a lot of the readers who identify with their protagonists, you know, they can say, boy, you're right. And and thank you for kind of um, um, legitimizing it because this has been my life. And, but also I think uh, Chris Crutcher and Catherine Patterson have said, thank you. And I know what to avoid and not to do now. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that's for sure, too, because, I mean, my mom told me when she was growing up, she, because, I mean, she was in and out of the foster care system, so she was like, honestly, I raised myself with books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's like, what I know that I teach you is what I learned from books. My so. professor at Kansas, Dr. Bushman, uh, he's passed away now, but he wrote an article about this in, in which he said that um, <clears throat> a lot of kids either they have no adult role models at all or the ones that they have are bad role models and they may have uh, either no supportive peer group or a peer group that's really a bad influence but books books can be uh, books can provide what's missing in their lives exactly exactly oh my goodness this was such a good time i really really appreciate you being here. Um, I went over a little bit, so I'm sorry if I kidnapped too much of your time. Um, Oh, you're really good at this. Um, (laughs) And I'm going to see if I can't uh, help you to expand your your reach. And also, I think, uh, let's see if either you and, hmm, how can, anyway, I'll connect you with Bob Leonard. You know, you'll see him sometimes on uh, Manderson Cooper or uh, Oh, in the, the New York Times, uh, trying to explain, you know, why are there so many, you would think there would be, I'm from Iowa, why, you'd think there'd be a lot of, you know, good people in, in rural Iowa, why, why do they want, why do they like Trump, and he tries to explain, yeah. well, what, you know, what, what they're thinking is, yeah. he doesn't condone it, but. Yeah, I, I definitely, I would love that, I would definitely appreciate that as well, and I also, I wanted to take a moment to, um, and I, I think I've expressed this to you before, but when I was in your class and you were talking about um, how like a lot of readers reach out to authors and say that they've helped them through like really hard mental periods. But when I was in your class, I was having the hardest time. I was having the hardest time, um, one, getting to class and two, just like getting through like my second year of college. I was just really struggling mentally. And um, I forgot the book that we were reading, but um, 
it the author sadly committed suicide um, oh ned vicini yeah ned vicini and you were talking to us and you guys and you were like this is very painful and i just hope i ask you guys just to stick around a little bit longer and i was just i was going through it and i remember thinking about that for days and weeks and months after you've told me even years and i think that was a moment that really saved me so i really appreciate you saying that to us and then that it's now full circle and i got to interview you here today so i really and look at all the good you're doing in the world oh my (laughs) goodness oh my goodness the world needs you oh my gosh (laughs) i like trying not to cry but (laughs) thank you so much and i really appreciate your time um is there anything that i can support you in right now that you would like to share with the audience any cool projects coming up yes all right. Um, <clears throat> we'll once again be putting on El Dia de los Niños, El Dia de los Libros on April 28th. And after four years of being online because of COVID, we're finally going to come back in person to ASU. We'll have about 500 uh, uh, students from around the valley. and But we'll also go out online to 47 countries around the world, including you, if you want to. Um, if you're interested in being a part of this in person or in cyberspace, let me know. Meg Medina will be our, our, our big gun. She's, she's in her last year of two years as the Library of Congress Ambassador for Young People's Literature. And we've got a surprise for her. We've got a surprise for her. And we're, we're also we're working on a number of other uh, authors. Uh, probably Brian Young, the famous uh, Diné Navajo writer, and Cynthia Leidig Smith, uh, expert uh, extraordinaire on uh, indigenous children's and YA literature, and um, and a few other surprises that uh, we're just starting to invite people. Love to have you um, participate in person or on online. Thank you so much. And thank you guys for watching. Remember to read what you love and DNF the rest. And we will talk to you guys later. Bye. So long, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to see more, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok, Oh That Girl Reads. If you want more bookish content, feel free to check out my booktube channel, Bria L, on YouTube. Remember, Read what you love and DNF the rest. Bye.